0: This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with historian Professor Michelle Arrow. Michelle is based at Macquarie University and she joined me to talk about the many archival treasures on the brink of destruction due to chronic federal funding cuts to the budget of the National Archives of Australia. It's great to be joined by someone who I've had on the program a few times now, Her name is Professor Michelle Arrow. Michelle is a historian based at Macquarie University and she wrote a fantastic book, an award-winning book called The 70s, which I originally spoke to her about a couple of years ago and absolutely I recommend that book. It certainly is such an engaging read and really brings up a lot about the 70s that even people I know who lived through the 70s didn't remember or weren't quite aware of, so um, it's really wonderful to chat with Michelle about something that is so critical to history, Australia's history and beyond, because of course our National Archives do hold documents that are relevant for other researchers as well. Michelle has written a couple of pieces, one for The Conversation called Our History Up in Flames, Why the Crisis at the National Archives Must Be Urgently Addressed, and she also wrote an op-ed for the Sydney Morning Herald about the same topic, which is essentially that Australia's national archival treasures are on the brink of destruction. So I welcome Michelle now. Thank you so much for joining us again, Michelle. It's my pleasure, Amy. Thank you for having me. It's a really always a pleasure to talk history with you because I get to nerd out about it um, with you, which I know we've done before, and we certainly did in our first chat about the 70s. And one of those elements of the nerd out, which was great, was to hear about your experiences delving into archives because that is and did form a great portion of your book and the research for your book, particularly a Royal Commission on Human Relationships, which really brought up some fascinating experiences of Australians in quite an interesting time period. So I wanted to ask first up to set the scene, um, given you're a practising historian and an academic historian, what do you do and how do you utilise archives and in particular Australia's National
1: Archives? Look, I've used the National Archives for my work Really, for quite a long time, one of the first things I ever read in the National Archives, I worked on, my first book was a history of women playwrights in mid-20th century Australia. And for that, I needed the National Archives for two reasons. One, to look at the records of the ABC, of the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, because a lot of women in the 30s and 40s were writing scripts for the ABC radio and screenplays. And one of the things that they have in the National Archives is things like women writing about how much they were being paid you know, and how much they felt they should be paid for the work that they were doing and and kind of reading the scripts and reading that kind of material. So the National Archives houses the the ABC's documentary archive. But one of the other things they held, which was kind of fascinating, was the ASIO files on a number of the writers that I was working on. So some of these women were members of the Communist Party. Um, so their ASIO files were often quite thick. They were heavily redacted. So all of the agents' names had been removed, but you could read you know, results and records of phone taps that women had been subjected to. You could read, you know, theatre reviews basically that the ASIO agents would write about the pieces that they'd seen. So it was kind of, and I've always uh, used the National Archives a lot for my work because they are incredibly rich resources. And And as I keep saying to people that, you know, we think of the National Archives as the records of the Commonwealth Government and its agencies, and that sounds kind of dry, but actually one of the richest things about the National Archives is that it contains a lot of material that is about ordinary people. It is the records that ordinary people have left, you know, because of their interactions with the Commonwealth Government. And so the work of my most recent, book about the 1970s and really told through the records of the Royal Commission on Human Relationships, which was an initiative of the Whitlam government in the mid-1970s in Australia, is that that Royal Commission was explicitly about inviting the public in to contribute you know they put posters and and radio ads out saying what do you think about you know the family social sexual legal uh, medical aspects of male and female relationships so this very broad remit and people wrote in people phoned in and all of that material is carefully collected and housed in the National Archives of Australia Uh, you know and historians have sort of known I guess about this issue around the National Archives for a long time but it's one of the things where when I realised that, you know, the sense of the urgency of this question, what, what's at stake here, that it, it moved me to kind of write about it publicly because I think people should know more about what is in the National Archives. And probably if there are family historians listening, they'll have used the National Archives because it, it collects um, a lot of information about military service, immigration and naturalisation records, all of those kinds of things. And, you know, there's something that relates to almost every person in Australia housed in that archive. So it's a very, very important archival resource for Australians.
0: Yeah it's as you say it's certainly not dry of course I'm sure there are some dry things there oh, yeah. by necessity <laughs> but um the kind of joy of doing history and being a historian or even just being a family history researcher is that you uncover just some absolute gems of information. It just feels like you're on a treasure hunt and you discover this you know, magic treasure that gives you some kind of new insight and uh, a new understanding of something that you didn't have before. So it is so
1: special. Yes, and unique. You know, I mean the thing about National Archives is that it holds records that are unique to that repository, that they're not held anywhere else. Most of the material is not published somewhere else, so it really is a set of unique records that are not held anywhere else and that's really why um, it's an important place an important role not just for researchers but it's actually an important democratic institution if you think about the National Archives it contains the records of government decision making and it's important for our trust in government for our understanding of the kind of system of checks and balances to be able to as citizens ask to see the documents that record government decision making you know that's a really important part of democracy and, and transparency and access so you know there there are, yes, it's, a, it's an important institution for historians and people who are interested in the past, but it's also an institution that I think is, is of re- relevance to all of us. It absolutely
0: is relevant and it does remind me of a, a recent tragedy which was the fires at the University of Cape Town in South Africa where really so many rare and special collections that were only held there, historical records, were damaged and pretty much a lot of them destroyed by this fire at the Jagger Library there in Cape Town. So it really certainly brought home for a number of, I know, historians and archivists, on Twitter when I was following that issue and conversation that these are things that we can't get back and that will be lost to South Africa's history. And that, in that sense, was, I guess, a disaster caused by fire. But in our situation, it is entirely preventable.
1: Yes, that's right. I mean, I think, you know, for me, the image of the of the archive literally on fire was kind of a really evocative metaphor in some ways. Obviously, it's a terrible tragedy as well. I don't want to kind of just say it's only a metaphor, but I, I was really struck by the fact that if someone went into the National Archives and set a fire on purpose, we would be horrified, and you know that would be a, a terrible tragedy, and it would be a crime. What we're doing, I think, you know, through, you know, we, as in the public, the government, by neglect, is kind of effectively the same thing. We are kind of allowing this material to degrade and to be destroyed before we can capture it on more secure digital formats. And it's if it, if action is not taken, it is going to go. It is like we've set it on fire. So it is. Um, There is some urgency in this question. There is a a kind of looming digital cliff that archivists around the world talk about, the idea that if if material that is captured on these formats is not converted to more secure formats by 2025, it it will kind of loom over the digital cliff and it will be destroyed. And
0: it is concerning because
1: of these various formats. And I wondered if you
0: could take us through, for those maybe who are part of the new generation and weren't around when these formats were around. What are some of, I guess, the range of outdated or outmoded formats that these treasures and documents and sound recordings and um, films are actually recorded on?
1: Yeah, so there's lots of different redundant formats that are no longer used. If you think about the mass media age of the 20th century, you think about how many new forms of mass media and recording audio recording or visual recording that have emerged so we have cinema we then had radio we then had television we had a number of different ways that television programs were recorded you know initially they were sort of the recordings were just simply recorded over, and, and they disappeared that way. You know, we've then had things that have been captured on cassette tape and VHS, and then finally, obviously, the the sort of move to digital formats. So a lot of the issues relate to kind of the fragility of those recordings themselves. So film, certain kinds of old film has a, a it's a process known as vinegaring, where it kind of it emits this sort of vinegary smell, and then it kind of is vulnerable just to dissolving, shattering. You know, so there are there is. The fact where the, the actual recording, you know, the, the film strips are kind of degrading because they're never meant to last more than 100 years or so, which is what we've sort of expected them to. We then have the problem too that equipment no longer exists or it is no longer able to be maintained to play them on. The analogy I used in my piece for the for the nine papers was the VCR. You know, I don't know about mm. you, I was old enough that I used to tape things off the television when I yes. enjoyed- watching documentaries or, you know, films and, and, you know, we would watch them over and over again. And after a while, you know, the the recording starts to get a bit snowy and the, you know, recording was not of great quality in the first place. You would be taping over things all the time. And then we all got DVD players eventually and those boxes of vcr cassettes that you had you couldn't couldn't really play them anymore they were basically just you know um junk because Mm. nobody had a vcr to play them so that's also part of the problem here is that things are kind of captured on what were secure formats at the time like cassette tapes and and vhs but i don't know if you've ever tried to play an old cassette tape when it's kind of in a situation where it's it's not kind of aged so well you know they get caught they you know the thing gets wound up you know this is the problem basically there's a combination of the deterioration of the original recordings the lack of equipment to play them on and the fact that they are just kind of degrading over time and really need to be preserved in a more secure digitized format and once they're digitized they can be stored on the cloud they are their you know preservation format they, they can be accessed again by other researchers but at the moment one of the things that the archives will do is if you do request a program you would like to view a, a piece of film or whatever often you have a delay you might have to pay some money to access that recording but they will make a digital copy for you but it's kind of on demand so things will get digitized in a sort of haphazard kind of way but of course that's not systematic that will leave a lot of things behind and so the urgency is also about making sure that not just little bits of the collection are digitized but that all the things that are at risk are digitized in a a timely way before they fall off the digital cliff.
0: Yeah. Two things to that. Yes, I can relate to that because um, even the university library holds some VHS videos and you quite literally have to go to the library to use their VHS player. Um, and hope that it is still working yes and similarly I absolutely have destroyed accidentally cassette tapes by putting it in a player that is no longer working but was working last time I used it so this is really very realistic concerns that you have raised because they've happened to me and no doubt to many others listening and I'm sure historians and archivists probably are a bit scarred by some
1: uh, experiences they might have had. (laughs) It's even things like when you think about your own life and how it's documented, you know, we all have photo albums and now we look at the photos and they're, they're sticking to the pages and you can't peel the photos off or yeah. filmed home movies of your wedding or something like that and then oh wait a minute we don't have that in a in a cd anymore so we don't you know like people there is a small business in in kind of industry in kind of converting things to digital but that is not going to you know solve this problem it, it is sort of a problem that affects all of us but you know the national archives needs a significant amount of funding to, in order to to sort of perform this properly and you mentioned there that there's
0: kind of been this general understanding of a hundred-year limit on the status or preservation and condition of certain objects and documents, and the fact that they really degrade to a point that they aren't usable anymore at varying points. I'm sure a hundred years isn't a kind of magic cutoff for
1: it's some things. It's quite true, but yes, it is. A, it, there would be a set. T- there is a set time period at which most of it will will no longer be of function after yeah. all. And you did mention that
0: date, that year is coming up pretty quickly. Like we've got here till 2025 to digitise a lot of records of a varying kind in terms of the formats that you've mentioned that they feature on. And this is something, I guess, which is a challenge, not just because of the scale in terms of the number of documents and audio recordings and video recordings, et cetera, but also the fact that funding has been cut significantly to our national institutions, the National Archives of Australia, for example, but also the National Library of Australia, the National Gallery of Australia, the National Film and Sound Archives of Australia. So this is something that I know, a number of institutions have felt ongoing pressure and have had to essentially cut staff over recent years in order to try and survive and to still try and carry out its mission but it seems that its mission is becoming undermined by budget cuts. I wondered whether you could share with us the reality in terms of the scale of the documents and the scale of the task but also the funding that's needed for that.
1: Yeah, so I think the funding really, for me, is is sort of, it's a really core part of this problem because, you know, it's interesting that I don't think archives and, and cultural institutions have necessarily been front of mind for politicians of either side for quite a long time. So from 1987 the national cultural institutions, and and you listed them there, and they include the War Memorial as well, but I'll get to how the War Memorial has been impacted on this slightly differently. So all of those national cultural institutions from 1987, which is a Labor government, had to give up what was called an efficiency dividend every year. So what this effectively meant is that every year their funding from government was reduced just a little. And the idea behind an efficiency dividend was to encourage Efficiency. It was in, in designed to encourage these cultural institutions to be innovative in their approaches, to maybe seek funding from other places, to kind of, you know drive savings and efficiency. And in some ways, that's a worthy and admirable goal. But there was an inquiry into the National Cultural Institutions that was undertaken by a Senate committee in 2019 that found that over, particularly over the last 10 years, that the cumulative effect of that efficiency dividend has really started to erode the core functions of these institutions. And it's important to note that in 2015-16, the um, Liberal government under Turnbull, Prime Minister Turnbull, imposed an additional 3% cut on on the budgets of all the national cultural institutions, with the exception of the Australian War Memorial. So you can see that over time, yeah, for a while you can find efficiencies. Yes, things can be done in different ways. You know, you can find some sponsorship or philanthropic funding, but really over the last, particularly over the last 10 years and the last five years in particular, this drive for efficiency has really meant that there's no more efficiencies to be found, right, that they're actually having to cut staff. I can give you one tiny example from the National Archives. They used to run a series of fellowships for emerging and mid-career researchers. Now, these are not a huge amount of money, but they're career-changing for the academics who have them, for the researchers who undertake them. So there were the mid-career one was $15,000 and the early career one was $3,000 for a researcher to have open access to the collections for a set period of time. They had to cut those in about 2014, I think, was last time they've issued those. So you can just see that in that one example, something that is a good for the archives. It gets researchers into the collection. It enables them to speak about their research in the public. I had one of those fellowships a few years before they got rid of them, but they no longer can do that stuff. But more seriously, it has really impacted on the staffing at these institutions. I think the National Archives has less staff now than they did in 2014, like significantly fewer staff. They've had to cut, you know, the the round of funding that was cut over the 2015-16 period resulted in a lot of redundancy. And, of course, without the staff, without those human resources, you lose expertise over the collection, but you also lose the people who can deal with the request to see material and who can digitise that material. So not only is the archive struggling with the money to actually undertake this task, a lot of that is about having the staff on the ground who can do this work in an urgent and timely way. Will you also mention in your piece the Tune Review into mm-hmm. the National
0: Archives, which was released in March this year, and recommended that the federal government fund a program to urgently digitise at risk materials? That would cost around $67.7 million. And in that piece, you do make a comparison to the funding that's been apportioned to the Australian War Memorial recently. I wonder if you could expand on that.
1: Yes, yeah, so the, the TUNE review was designed to uh, investigate the kind of efficiency and the function of the National Archives because there have been questions raised about the, the way the Archives has, uh, you know, the way it delivers its mission. You know, re- researchers are reporting very long delays in accessing material and we can talk perhaps a bit more about some of those other issues with the Archives shortly. But yeah. one of the things that the TUNE review did recommend was that the government urgently give an upgrade of funding uh, of, as you said, 67 point Seven million dollars in order to save the most at-risk material, and that would include almost all of the, you know, at-risk audiovisual material. So when you think about the fact that the government, the only increased money to the national cultural institutions that's been provided in the last few years is five hundred million dollars to the Australian War Memorial to demolish Anzac Hall and build a new extension to the War Memorial, the sixty-seven million dollars is is a fraction of what that would cost. You know, and and my my suggestion would be that the war memorial could still have a very nice extension if it wants one uh for four hundred you know 30 million dollars instead of uh, 500 million and it could save because after all a lot of the records that the national archives hold are military service records mm. so actually records that relate to Australia's history of war and you know it's really important that those get retained as well so it is striking I think that you know the the pattern of funding has been to underfund all of the other institutions that deal with almost every other aspect of Australia's history and heritage but the war memorial has been exempt from that additional three percent funding cut imposed in 2016 and they've actually been given a large amount of new funding and now the National Archives did get some money because it needed a new building or it to renovate its building but it certainly didn't get the money that it needed to do this at this urgent digitization work which seems to me to be important yeah
0: <laughs> yeah having a functioning building seems yeah. like a minimum thing that a yeah. government should fund not kind of a bonus round exactly. of funding yeah
1: things that it's really striking about this is that it can't you know one of the, the ways the National Archives has tried to find efficiencies I suppose and make money is through user pays kind of digitization so for example if you apply to the National Archives to look at a file of records a file of documents and you can't make it to an archives branch because they're all you know they're housed in every state you can ask to have it digitized make a copy and that's kind of basically user pays digitization because you pay to have the digital copy made and then that copy becomes available on the archives on the website so anyone else can access it but they've increased the fees for that digitization by I think three or four times so it's now Really expensive for individual researchers to obtain a copy of a file. I I asked for one to be made last year and it was one folder of documents and it cost me about $250. So, you know, it's just not feasible for most people to spend that much money. So, again, this drive to kind of try and recover money from users is really not going to save the archives. It needs government money, it needs an injection of money, of taxpayers' funding from the federal government. Well,
0: that is a really critical point that you raise about accessibility and it is, you know, obviously relevant to the digital conversation Mm -hmm. as well because really the cost obviously precludes a number of people who don't have institutional backing and even those who have institutional backing don't have massive budgets at the moment. So um, that's obviously a challenge. Another challenge is you've mentioned, you know, travel and a pandemic that we've been in. So many people haven't actually been able to go physically to archive to actually sit there and go through it another one of those practical elements is you don't know what's in the folder completely <laughs> until you get the folder uh-huh. you've kind of got this top line idea but you don't really know if it's completely relevant to your field or your inquiries. so that's another issue Absolutely. it's archival gambling you're like yeah.
1: how I'm gonna lay <laughs> my money down but is this thing going to be worth it you know you don't yeah until you get it. So, yeah, all of those things are really important. And I think it's important too to note that, you know, the archives has come under some criticism in recent years for its kind of overly cautious approach to dealing with access requests. And I think a lot of historians are concerned about this, that uh, you can apply to see materials and particularly portfolios like foreign affairs. What happens is the archive sends the request back to the department that created the file in the first place. And often those files can just sit there on a desk in Department of Foreign Affairs or wherever for months or even years while the kind of request is sort of slowly processed. So it's not timely and it's not very fast and it's not very transparent in terms of who gets to see what. So often researchers who might want to write a history that, you know, relates to foreign affairs or, um, you know, defence or um, intelligence portfolios, they basically can't do it because it can take years to get the file released. And also the issue is that, uh, you know, with the Palace Letters case, with Jenny Hawking's attempt to access those letters from between Sir John Kerr and Buckingham Palace, the National Archives spent about a million dollars trying to prevent her from seeing those records. And, of course, they lost that case right up to the High Court. You know, a lot of people have raised questions about was that really the best way for the archives to, to use its precious resources in a time when they really don't have a lot of money? So I think that's important to note that there are some questions valid questions about how the archives conducts itself in relation to dealing with requests from researchers but I think on the other hand both things can be true there can be those issues but also the archives is really underfunded and needs desperately needs an injection of funding in order to perform those crucial digitization functions.
0: I'm glad you brought the palace letters up because I did ask that question of Jenny Hocking when she had won the case and the National Archives had lost and she similarly had that kind of criticism of the archives in the sense of, you know, it was particularly futile and (laughs) could have been used, you know, to preserve our history. So hopefully things do change, but it does seem that there is this tentative kind of culture of trying to be ultra cautious and careful and perhaps in some cases that is relevant but also You know, time has moved on in a lot of these cases and it potentially isn't that relevant to redact a whole load of documents from, you know, 60 years ago. So um, this is something which, yeah, is obviously an important part that we should debate, really, and we should be having, I guess, an open critique so that we do get an improvement and transparency for historians and for anyone interested in the public record on certain topics. Michelle, to close out this conversation, if the National Archives doesn't get adequate funding in the next budget, the next federal budget, which is being handed down, what would happen to the archives? And I guess I'm asking also, who would decide what is prioritised for digitisation in terms of how does anyone, I guess, make that decision of what will leave and let be destroyed potentially and which ones we will choose to prioritise? Are there values or principles that are going to inform someone in in that decision-making process?
1: That's a really good question. And to be honest, I'm not 100% certain about that. But one thing I do know is that one of the, the possible approaches might be is that some materials, so, for example, material that relates to Indigenous collections may well be... IATSIS, which collects a lot of Indigenous cultural heritage and historical materials, may be asked whether they would like to, you know, take over preservation of that material or things like that. So the National Film and Sound Archive could well be asked if they would want to contribute in that way as well for other kinds of material. There are rules about, you know, there are kind of guidelines about what gets preserved and what doesn't. And I wonder, I think that my understanding is that it will be trying to prioritise uh, Indigenous material um, that was one area of, of priority, I think, that there are other issues around particularly fragile, older material, you know, that that really is, you know, it'll be prioritised in, in kind of order of, of most urgent need. But it is a kind of open question, I think, about how the archive will make those decisions, in fact. And I think it probably would be, I mean, in, in some ways making the open call for you know with the approaching the sydney morning herald or kind of raising the issue in the media and kind of saying look these are all the materials that are at risk i think that's partly about a way of saying these are the things that we will prioritize if, if we don't get the funding yeah. um, but I, I do think it's a really important and open question as to how the archives will make those que- make those decisions and that's perhaps something that they might like to ask the federal government for guidance on. <laughs> yeah
0: and hopefully some senators
1: can ask it in the senate estimates yeah, as well yeah exactly i think that's a really important point too that you know the one thing i think that's been good about this is that it has raised an issue that you know a lot of historians have known about for a while but it's great to see it getting a bit more you know kind of front center media coverage
0: Yeah, Michelle, it's been so, so valuable to talk with you about this topic in some depth and to prioritise it for our national conversation and keep it in our minds for when we see the federal budget delivered next week. So thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us, but also to advocate on this issue in your own time as well. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Amy. I've just been chatting with historian Professor Michelle Arrow who is based at Macquarie University and we've been talking about the National Archives and the threat to our national treasures which are really on the brink of destruction. As a postscript to this discussion, with the delivery of the 2021 federal budget on Tuesday... It is important to note that the National Archives of Australia only received a tiny boost to its operating budget of $700,000 and no funding for extra staff. This falls well short of the $67.7 million needed to digitise the records that are disintegrating. The National Archives have now been forced to ask the public for donations.